one of you men made me aware of a law that you have in New Hampshire that I didn't know about, and that is you can't have your phone in your hand when you're driving, right? So everything I said means your phone is right here. <laughs> well, I, I actually, I think it's a great law. I mean, it really is. So just wanted to say that so everybody's got that straight. Our text, again, the key text for the weekend is a saying which is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, right? And the saying is, train yourself for godliness, for, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise, what? For the life to come and this life, or this life and the life to come. I mean, so it's got a, it's got a promise for all our years here on earth, and then when you step out into eternity, the promise goes out there, the discipline. So this is a, a major text to keep before us and to believe and understand it is a command that comes from the lips of the Apostle Paul, and as a command from Paul, it is a command from the Spirit himself. Train yourself for godliness. Work out for godliness. Let's uh, pray as we get started. Our Father, uh, we just sang, all we have is Christ. And then we sang hallelujah to your name. And that is true. Our life is hidden in you. And in this world, we uh, thirst for you as a deer pants for the water brooks. We long for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We look forward to the shadow of your wings. We look forward to the new Jerusalem. We look forward to the presence of angels and the redeemed host. All of these things, God, and they're coming faster than we think. And so I pray, God, we ask that a, a sense of the moment would descend upon us. We would use this time, Father, to enrich, enhance put down stakes in these men's lives that will profit them in their spiritual growth, their family and friends, whatever it be, and finally the church for your glory. Oh God, uh, be with us and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Find where I am here. Uh, church attendance is uh, blanketed with a malaise of non-attenders that has produced uh, a whole army of church hitchhikers. Hitchhiker's thumb. The guy's walked as long as the highway. He's got his thumb. What does his thumb say to you? His thumb says, you buy the car. You pay for the insurance. You pay for the repairs. You put gas in the car, and I'll ride with you. Right? But if you have an accident, I'm out of there, and I'll probably sue. I think that's true. 
Well, there's so many church attenders say, you go to the meetings, uh, you foot the bill, you serve on the boards and committees, you grapple with the hard issues, and I'll come along for the ride. But if things don't suit me, I'll criticize, I'll complain, and I'll probably bail. So you see, my thumb's always out for a better ride. Church hitchhikers. Uh, and this conditional loyalty is fueled by a consumer McChurch mentality that picks and chooses here and there on your churchly shopping list and for your mind. So there are church hitchhikers, and I know this because I experienced it when I was pastoring in the Midwest, that attend one church for the preaching, send their children to a second church for its dynamic youth group, and go to a church third third church for a small group and uh, give to none of them. Pollster George Barnes supports this saying, the average adult thinks that belonging to a church is good for other people but represents unnecessary baggage and bondage for himself. You hear that? It's good for others, but it's too much baggage. So today at the end of the, of the 20th century, as we're into this millennium, we have a phenomenon unthinkable in any other century, and that is, brothers, this is true, churchless Christians. They're everywhere. There's a vast herd of professed Christians who exist as nomadic hitchhikers without accountability, any accountability, without discipline, church discipline, without discipleship, and live apart from the regular benefits of Lord's table. There's a whole host of people like that. To borrow from Cyprian's idea, they have God as their father, but they reject their church as their mother, and they are incomplete and stunted oddities. Now, here's the deal. I'm talking to men. It's compounded by the fact that men are far less committed to church than women. That's, that's a statistical reality. Uh, some of those pastors were talking about that uh, just a couple of days ago. Now, as to why this has happened, I think you can give reasons. I think one is a theological reason, and that is we understand, especially as evangelical Christians, that the, there's a sense in which within all the outward trappings of the church, there is the invisible body of Christ, the true church. But that emphasis on the invisible body of Christ has been transformed by some in their minds to make no commitment to the local expression of the body of Christ. So that the theological truth is then misused. Another reason, I think, for this de-churching of so many in America is just historic American individualism. I mean, what is, what's the motto of this state? Live free or die, man. I mean, that's, yeah, amen. That's a John Wayne statement, man. So the, our natural inclination is that we don't need anybody. You know, I'm a man. So we, 
We ride off from church with our reference Bibles under our arm to go out and fight the enemies in the Badlands as Lone Rangers, right? Because we're men. Well, that cavalier disregard uh, is eccentric. It is, uh, I mean, more than eccentric. It's like, what? On church history? Listen to this. I'll give you this. St. Augustine, in his handbook, this is his church handbook, holds up the visible church, referring to it as, quote, and I quote, the church with, without whom there is no forgiveness of sins. He could not conceive of being separate from the local body of Christ and being a believer. Um, Augustine said the deserter of the church cannot be in Christ since he is not among Christ's members. You can see his logic. Martin Luther, all the way down to Luther, uh, you know, close to, uh, well, almost a thousand years, and Luther similarly said, Outside this Christian church, there is no salvation or forgiveness of sins, but everlasting death and damnation, even though there may be a magnificent appearance of holiness. He just couldn't conceive of it. John Calvin echoed Cyprian's thought that having evidence of, of God as your father is having a church as your mother. In fact, in, uh, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is theology, you come to book one uh, chapter 1 of Book 4 of the Institutes, and this is the title, The True Church with Which, as Mother of All the Godly, We Must Keep Unity. That's how he talks about the church, the ecclesiology. And then, coming out of the Reformation, the Second Helvetic Confession put the idea even more forcefully, for as there is no salvation outside Noah's Ark when the church perished in the flood, so we believe there is no certain salvation outside of Christ And hence, we teach that those who wish to live ought not to be separated from the true church of Christ. You've got to be part of the visible body of Christ. And then you take the Westminster Confession, which is the the confession of the Puritans, and is this, the visible church out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So this idea of church hitchhikers, church nomads, Spiritual Lone Rangers, John Wayne's Live Free or Die are aberrations on the history. They really are, of the church. And what we need to do is be blasted from our delusions with an understanding of the great doctrine of the church. And I have to say, brothers, nothing will detonate your soul more than Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24. And I'd like you to turn there because we're going to look at it and uh, have our minds kind of blasted and blown by seven great wonders of the church. Seven wonders. That's Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. I won't give a page number because we all got different Bibles. But give you a little time to find it. I think it's, it's good to have your eyes on it. And mine will vary a little bit. You know, they'll have be a word or two different, but you can see the clauses and so on. 
God's word, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men. To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. No small thoughts there. Massive thoughts about the church. I, I uh, lived in Chicago for a number of years, and the great city planner of the city of Chicago was Daniel Burnham, who planned uh, Michigan Avenue with Grant Park at one end, with the lake on the other side, and then uh, Lincoln Park on the other end, with the lake on the other side. He planned that whole, laid that whole thing out. We've got Burnham Harbor right in between. But here's what he said when he planned uh, Chicago. He said, think no small thoughts. They have no magic in them to stir the hearts of men. Well, there are no small thoughts here. These are meant to elevate the thoughts of the men here. No small thoughts. First, beginning of verse 22, we've come to the city of God, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now, Mount Zion was the location of the mountain stronghold which King David captured and made his religious center for his kingdom, bringing in the ark of God's presence. And it was on that same mount when Solomon built his temple that he built his temple on Mount Zion, and it became synonymous with the earthly dwelling place of God, with the temple. So in the church, we've come to the heavenly Mount Zion. It's heavenly counterpart, the spiritual Jerusalem from above, the true city of God, that we're all citizens of that city. In one sense, that city is still to come. It's going to come down from heaven, so to speak. At the same time, we've already arrived there in Christ, and we're now presently citizens of the heavenly city and enjoy its privileges. Um, tells us in Philippians 1.27 that we are to live our lives in a, as citizens, that's what it says, as citizens, i.e. of the kingdom of God, in a manner worthy of the gospel. We, our citizenship is in heaven, right? Philippians 3.10. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we are presently citizens of the heavenly city and enjoy its privileges. So guys, you come to the city of God. That's one. Second, as a church, we meet angels. You see that in verse 22. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 32 that during the giving of the law, it was attended by myriads and myriads of angels, the giving of the law. Now, you remember that uh, when the flames went up from the top of Mount Sinai, the blare of shofars, the uh, gold lightning radiating in the sky, 
that it was attended by myriads of angels and then the giving of the law. Now, myriads means innumerable. A million? I don't know. A billion? I don't know. But myriads, innumerable angels. From Daniel, we hear Daniel 7.10, about the Ancient of Days, thousands upon thousands attended him. The Ancient of Days, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. It's talking about angels. 10,000 times 10,000 is like saying a million stood before him. David said, you're talking about the chariots of fire, Psalm 68, 17, the angels of God are, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. Angelic chariots, vans, chariots of fire. So in the church, we come to dizzying thousands of angels all in joyful celebration. Now, um, I, was, I had uh, lunch with Wayne Litvin, who some of you will know of. He's a theologian, and he's been an academic and so on. And he waxed expansively about the wonders of corporate worship and how the angels join us in worship and that we need to be reawakened to the stunning reality of the presence of angels that the early church was aware of. They knew that angels were with them in corporate worship. This is not corporate worship, but this is an assembly of believers, and my belief is that there are angels here today. You know, if I was to put it in poetic terms, if you could hear the rustle of their wings, I don't think they probably have wings. I don't know. You know I think they have jets. Uh, so I don't know, you know. Um, but they are everywhere, flaming spirits. Hebrews 1.14, ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Angels are sent to minister to us who are inheritors of salvation. That is the reality. Kind of like Jacob's dream when he has that ladder and he sees angels ascending and descending you know, on him at Bethel. What, what that vision was is there's commerce between heaven and earth, Jacob, on your behalf. And then Jesus identifies himself with Jacob's ladder, angels descending and ascending. So when we come together, we come to an assembly graced by angels in their presence. That is mind-blowing. I didn't think of that, but the scriptures say it. Third, we come to co-heirs. You see it in this text there, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Now look very carefully the the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Now, this firstborn, Jesus, is the firstborn par excellence because as the firstborn son of God, he inherits all creation. In, in uh, the Hebrew economy, the firstborn got the inheritance, right? He is the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.14. He inherits all creation. Everything's not only created it, but he inherits it according to that, that uh, section of Scripture. That is Jesus. He's the firstborn. Uh, but we are the church of the firstborn. 
Firstborn sons inherit everything. So if you're a believer, you're not a second-born son or a third-born son or a fourth-born son. Every man in here is a believer, is a firstborn son. And he is co-heir of everything with Jesus. So what I got is a bunch of rich guys sitting here. Really. And that's not an exaggeration. Romans 8, 17, we are co-heirs or joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation. And we are the church. You are the church of the firstborn. Number one heirs whose names are written in heaven. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And we got all these different churches represented here. But you're all firstborn. Nobody's second. Fourthly, we come to God. You see it in verse 23. You have come to God, the judge of all men. We come in awe because he is God and we are sinners. But we don't come in utter, utter dread because of the blood of Jesus that covers us. In fact, Amazingly, we embrace Scripture's call, and I'm quoting Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, with confidence, the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. That is our highest thing, to come before God. You have come to God, the judge of all men, the judge of of all men, the judge of all men, because of the blood of Jesus. Fifth, we come to the heavenly church triumphant. You see it in verse 23. To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. The triumphant are those that have gone before us into heaven. And they're in heaven, and I'm, I'm, we're not having conversations with them but we share a spiritual solidarity with those that are in heaven. In other words, I share a spiritual solidarity with my best friend, David MacDonald, that I performed, did his funeral three years ago. David in heaven has the same spiritual life I have, right? You can see what I'm saying, that, that we have that with the church triumphant. And we share the same secrets and joys in life of Abraham, Moses, David, Paul, Peter. The same spiritual life, the same solidarity. We've come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That's fifth. Sixth, we come to Jesus. You see it in verse 24. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The mediator of the what? New covenant. What are we talking about? Well, at the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup of wine and he held it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. We come to the blood of Jesus poured out for us, making the new covenant, fulfilling Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, it tells us that in the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31 that he would write the law on our hearts 
that he would make us his people and all would know him from the least to the greatest. That's the gospel in the new covenant. We come to that, the fullness of the new covenant. And Jesus is, is the source and dispenser of every blessing of the new covenant, everything. And then seventh, we come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, when there's a, a, a William Blake picture of Cain having just murdered Abel. I don't know if you've ever seen this. And he's running sideways like this. So you see him, he's sprinting. And he looks around like this. And his face, his mouth is wide open like a scream of horror. And he's covering his ears. Because the blood of slain brother was calling out from the ground to him. That's, that's the picture. So the, the, the blood of Abel was calling for judgment. But he says, you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because Jesus is crying out forgiveness. Jesus' blood. So, Brothers, right now, you've come to seven sublime realities right now to these seven sublime wonders and disciplines, to the city of God, to myriads of angels in assembly, to the church of the firstborn heirs, to God, to the church triumphant, to Jesus, to forgiveness. No small thoughts, massive thoughts about the church. We all know the name John Bunyan, uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the, uh, the Bedford blacksmith uh, who served God, a lay preacher who wrote, I mean, just an amazing guy. And John Bunyan once told of falling into despondency which lasted for several days and desperately seeking a word from God to meet his need. I think he was in prison where he spent a lot of time. And then came the grand text, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. And here's what Bunyan wrote when he thought about the seven wonders we just talked about. But that night was a good night to me. I have had but few better. I longed for the company of some of God's people that I might have imparted to them what God had showed me from this text. Christ was a precious Christ to my soul that night. I could scarcely lie in my bed for joy and peace and triumph through Christ. These detonating thoughts about the church. I'm with John Newton. Savior, if of Zion City, I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. These tremendous truths, and we were talking about it just recently, that the church will outlive the world. It's the only institution that will outlive the world. Um, Parliament is not going to outlive the world. Certainly not the Senate and the House. They're not going to outlive the world, are they? Grand edifices 
magnificent buildings meant to look eternal are going to go. But guess what? This is going to remain. This outlives the world. It's the sense in which the church is larger than the world itself. It is the enduring fact of our existence. You need to understand it here in New England where a lot of, there's a lot of disbelief. This is the only enduring thing in New England. You guys. Churches. Well, given the magnitude of the doctrine of the church, it's ironic that scant allegiance is given to the church. I go back to that quotation from George Barna. The average adult thinks that belonging to a church is good for other people, but represents, listen to this, unnecessary bondage and baggage to himself. So today, there are droves, an anomaly on the blip, a blip on church history who have never been committed to the local church and never intend to be. I don't think I'm talking to you in that respect, but I'm giving you great information about your commitment to the body of Christ. Personally, the doctrine of the church ought to tell us that, that we are tragically diminished by non-participation in the body of Christ. I will say this, men. You can never be what you need to be spiritually apart from commitment to the local body and sitting under the benefits of the preaching of the word and the discipline of the church and the Lord's table. You can, you'll never be what you, you can't do it as a spiritual lone ranger. It will not work. And secondly, and secondly, the church is diminished by your non-participation and you need to give it all you can. Hitchhiking is not an option. So you need the church. And the scriptures are explicit regarding the necessity of the church in attendance. Hebrews 10.25, if you want to note this, it's just back a couple of chapters. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. They were experiencing this in Rome, the church was. But let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So that straightforward exhortation ought to be enough in itself, but there are several powerful reasons that we need the church as our mother. And that's what it's been to me. And I, I just say this personally, guys, and I can't say it I suppose I could say it if I took the time with enough emotion, but the church, I'm talking about the body of Christ, was the womb that warmed my soul till it was ready for birth under the ministry of my pastor, Verl Inland. I, uh, I just performed his, his uh, funeral uh, a year ago. He was 95. When I met him in 1955 as a 12-year-old, he was 28 years old, uh, an ex-navigator of, of bombers over Germany and Italy and Yugoslavia, shot down over there, survived it, came back, went to seminary and gave his life to pastoral ministry in a church plant. That's where I met him. And he is, he's like, in my mind, you know how you have people that will really influence you? It's like, 
when I, when I think about being a pastor and I think about pastoral conduct, it's like he's a little TV monitor right here, and I'm saying, what would Verl Inley do? You know, and I see kind of his benign smile, and I think about how, how he would conduct himself in a church meeting, how he was gracious with people. You know, I mean, it, he was part of the womb that nourished me. He's the one that I sat down with, and he showed me Romans 10, 9, and 10, and my tears fell on the page that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. He was there when I said I was called to the ministry. He was there a year later when he showed me Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to him, which is a reasonable service of worship. And I wanted, you know, I began to understand that. I mean, he was there. He set an example. And uh, his last three or four years, he didn't know who I was. I was lovely nurtured through my youth group leaders, Howard and Ruby Bussey, who were in their 20s. And Dave McDonald, my best friend, and Jack Matthews and I were, we, we I'm sure, bugged those people to death by always being over at their house and always mooching out of the refrigerator and always, uh, you know, I mean, they loved us and cared for us. The church gave me the milk of the word through the strong teaching of an insurance salesman in my church named Robert Seeley, who uh, always was witnessing. He always carried, guys, this is, you want to talk about a throwback of a tract. It was by, What Must I Do to Be Saved by John R. Rice. You know that one with the flames on the cover? <laughs> and uh, he, he, was all, he believed in the gospel, the best personal witness I've ever seen. But he loved the book of Romans, and as a boy, he taught it to me through four times in succession. And when I wrote a commentary to Romans in the Preaching the Word series, I dedicated to Robert Roman Seeley, because he put my roots down in the book of Romans, an insurance salesman. The church saw me through hard times through the prayers of spiritual mothers like Roselva Taylor. And I, you know, I acted out in high school. I remember one time, I, I won't tell you what all I did, but I got punched out really good. Came to church with a big shiner. And Roselva had me in the corner. You know, she cared enough to reprove me. The church was the womb, Garfield, little Garfield Baptist in Long Beach, California, where my wife as a little girl was saved and where she was cared for and nurtured. And she came from a very, an alcoholic father and a very difficult family. And then has been the mother of my best friends like Dave McDonald, who I just had his funeral, as I mentioned. You know what Dave wrote in my Bible to me? It would be misunderstood if you didn't know David and me and you didn't know what it was saying in 1 Samuel where David... I'm talking about King David, mourns the loss of Jonathan, and he says, your love to me was better than the love of women. That's what David wrote in my Bible. You know what he meant. He wasn't talking about anything edgy. He's talking about the fact that there's a type of male love and comradeship that's a wonderful thing. You know, David's in heaven today. I was best man at his wedding. He was best man at my wedding. Uh... We had our Ferris Bueller's Day Offs together. 
So, guys, I believe in the church. And what that means, I think, is that we need to understand, here we are talking about train yourselves, discipline yourselves for godliness. Well, bodily training is some value. Godliness is a value in every way. It's an old promise for this present life and the life to come. It holds huge promise in this present life and the life to come, the discipline of being committed to the body of Christ, the church, and the life to come. And, and you know this, the entire Christian life is about commitment. Commitment to Christ, commitment to the church, commitment to family, commitment to marriage, commitment to friendship, commitment to ministry. None of these things, the church, family, marriage, friendship, ministry, will flourish without commitment. For example, marriage can never produce security, satisfaction, and growth that it promises without commitment. That is why these provisional commitments, these live-in things, are so unsatisfactory today. That's why there's so much suicide, unfulfillment, just crazy stuff going on out there. Because commitment through the good times and the bad is what makes marriage grow and brings greatest fulfillment. You you know this. On the most elementary level, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And you don't have to go home to be married. But if you don't, it'll make for a pretty poor relationship. So... I just want to say that there are all kinds of benefits for commitment to the church. One is worship. Guys, to have your soul swept up to God in a unique, elevating power of corporate worship. And I'm, I'm talking about, Luther would say, Luther said that when he was alone by himself, there was no spark. He was talking about singing. But he said when he came to church, it was like the spark was ignited. It was with the people. I can't sing that well. But when I'm with a bunch of guys that are singing, I feel like I can sing. You know, and, and I do sing the words, and I do sing with all my heart. There's something just elevating being with people in worship. There's something elevating by sitting with a bunch of guys, and you've got your Bible open, and some are nodding their head and going, mm, yeah, mm, that kind of thing, giving assent together, hearing the Word of God together, singing together, praying together. There's nothing like it, is there? And hearing the Word. Remember, I, I told you, I said, I said, listening to the word preached up here by your preacher is, is like going through it slow motion. You're going, oh, okay, mm, yeah, and so on. Have that, that happens in corporate worship. Even hearing the scripture read and having everybody hear it at the same time and hear it read. And then there's the attendance at the Lord's table communion where you are refreshed by the atoning work of Christ, the body and blood of Christ. I think of Bernard's words, we taste thee, O thou living bread, he says, speaking of the bread, speaking of Christ, and he says, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead, he's talking about the cup, and thirst our souls from thee, to fill. 
And in churches where discipleship takes place, it never, it doesn't take place outside the church. It's where the deepening of life takes place. It's where you get your vision for life. You get your world vision. That's where you get missions. So, men, you need the church because the scriptures say you do. You need a mother because without commitment to her, you won't grow to be what you ought to be. And the grand, great doctrine of the church tells us anything. It tells us whoever we are, whether we're president, whether we're a business executive, a military leader, a, or you're in a parachurch organization, you have your own business, whatever it is, a teacher, whatever it is, the church must be the center of your life. The church hitchhiking is an aberration. And so is mild commitment. And so I just say this. You can hear this legalistically, but I'm not saying it. You need to commit yourself to regular attendance to the worship services of your church. Just as simple as that. Your schedule, your day timer. I guess I better set it down. I'm in New Hampshire. Um, ought to show your commitment. Uh, when you travel, you ought to attempt to schedule yourself to, to be back for church if you possibly can. One of the things that I have not liked about my itinerant ministry running around like this is that I'm absent from the local body too much. I am. But that's part of it. And then I would say, if you're not a church member, you need to covenant to join and commit yourself to supporting the church and submitting to her discipline. One of the great gifts of being a member of your church is that you submit to the discipline of the leadership of the church. That's a grace. Which will tell you if your marriage is going out of line, they'll tell you. If you know, if business, they'll tell you. I mean, responsibly. You know what I mean. Not like big brother looking over your shoulder, but it's people that care enough to tell you the truth when you need to hear it. And I would say you need to participate, and it includes serving here with the talents that God has given you. And I, I don't, guys, here, this, is, this is the men. The biggest problem is not getting women to serve in the church. It's getting men to serve. And, and I understand it. Uh, uh, you know, you've got a job. You've got this. You've got all kinds of responsibilities. But you need to have a place where you're serving the body, whether it's running this. And the guy up in the booth has my life in his hands, by the way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Uh, if it's uh, helping park cars, helping greet people, doing the things that need to be done around the church, the physical things that you can do, teaching Sunday school, you know, my son, by the way, my son, Richard Kent Hughes, my son Kent, when he was in the fourth grade, could not recite four non-sequential numbers back to you. He couldn't recite the alphabet in the fourth grade. This is Richard Kent Hughes, Jr., really severely learning disabled. Well, 
he managed to graduate from high school and he scratched his way through Columbia Bible College, basically at the grace of his professors and the other students that were helping him. And uh, Kent can hardly remember a thing that he studied. He got his degree, but he can't remember anything. He's got a painting business today, huge specialties. You know where he serves in church? Where he served for 15 years? With the two and three year olds in the nursery. He's been doing it for 15 years. People bring their babies and hand them over to Kent and Kristen, his wife, and they take care of the babies. You think that's manly? I think it's really manly. So you guys get what I'm talking about, don't you? In giving, you need to support your church first. And I want to say that your support of your local church should take place over your support to parachurch ministries. Your church is first. I didn't say any percent, did I? I just said you need to give to your church. It needs to have priority. And then you need to love her and pray for her. Uh, Timothy Dwight, Arab <laughs> of New England, heir to the Puritans, the greatest president of Yale University. He gave evangelistic talks at Yale when he was there in about 1720. Timothy Dwight gave this immortal expression. We've sung it before. You know it. Here it is. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand, the church. For her, the church, my tears shall fall. For her, the church, my prayers ascend. For her, my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Brothers, you've come to the city of God. You've come to thousands of angels. You've come to firstborn heirs. You've come to God the judge. You've come to church triumphant. You've come to Jesus the meter of the new covenant. And you've come to sprinkled blood that cries a greater word of forgiveness than the blood of Abel. Explosive truths. And, uh, you know, I, I'll just say this is, this, is, uh, this is my huge stick about time. Uh, I remember when our first uh, baby, Holly, was born in 1962, <laughs> okay? And we're living in California. It was, it was uh, August 17, 1962, and I took my wife to the beach that day. I didn't know she was going to deliver that night. I hollered out a place for a tummy in the sand, and, uh, you know, I played in the surf a little bit and came back and laid down next to her and had my little Volkswagen with the sun top. And I went back and we both got miserably sunburned. And that night she went into labor. I remember the doctors pulled back the sheet and said, what did you do? You know, she was just red as a lobster. And I was too. Well, our little Holly was born. And she was like a, a little hot star falling from heaven, you know. I blink my eyes, and I'm standing in Central DuPage Hospital outside of Chicago, and Holly is giving birth to her firstborn, uh, young Brian. I just blink my eyes, and Brian's being born, you know, and he's like a little, he's a male, he's a supernova, you know, no, I'm kidding. And, uh, 
that's sexist, I'm in trouble, don't repeat it. Um, so, uh, so then <laughs> I blink my eyes again, and young Brian's firstborn, Rebecca, is being born in Spokane, Washington. Another moist little star falling from heaven. That's three blinks. Guess what? I got about one blink and I'm with Jesus. And it goes by that fast. I'm not kidding. You know. So men, I, I'm giving you the doctrine of the church. A discipline which uh, sometimes you have to go. You've got to get out of bed and you've got to go do it. You've got responsibilities that you've taken. You get up and you do them. Uh, because you love Christ, love his body, love the church, and want to glorify him. That's why. That's not legalism, is it? That's love. Right. Amen.